I believe that uh, sometime during uh, December 25th, 1996, Christmas night, Christmas night, someone got into the house, John and Patsy Ramsey. I believe there is some evidence to suggest strongly that he may have come in through a basement window. found tracks and marks on the little girl's back and neck that he thought pointed to a stun gun being used in the case that perhaps she'd been taken from her bed and kept quiet because she'd been stunned. I think that the stun gun is one of the best clues left behind by the killer as far as a clue, but it also may explain why John Bonet did not cry out when she was first abducted. I am convinced that a stun gun was used. Lou detailed 10, 11, 12, 13 points that led him to believe that an intruder had committed this homicide and not an inside job by any one of the three family members. In 1966, Lou Smith joined the Colorado Springs Police Department. After years of service, he worked his way up to the rank of detective. Lou Smith eventually would become the department's top homicide investigator. He was involved in a number of notable cases, including the conviction of spree killer Freddie Glenn, for a series of murders. This included, at the time, the cold case killing of Karen Grammer, the younger sister of actor Kelsey Grammer. Later, at the request of his one-time protege and lifelong friend John Anderson, Lou joined the El Paso County Sheriff's Department. John Anderson was the recently elected sheriff, and one of his major goals during his tenure as sheriff was to solve the murder of Heather Dawn Church. Heather was a 13-year-old 8th grader at Falcon Middle School when she vanished September 17, 1991 from her home off of Eastonville Road in El Paso County, Colorado. Her mother had left the house around 5.30 p.m. When she returned at 10.15 p.m., Heather was missing. Heather Dawn Church's father had been one of the original suspects in the daughter's murder. El Paso County Sheriff's deputies, FBI agents, and a battalion of volunteers spent two years looking for Heather. In 1993, a hiker discovered a human skull near an old abandoned car off of Rampart Range Road. Exactly two years after her disappearance, dental records were used to identify the remains of Heather. Lou Smith, through dogged detective work, discovered that the abductor and killer was the victim's neighbor, Robert Charles Brown. Brown ultimately confessed to a total of 48 murders. He was convicted for the murder of Heather Don Church. 
We covered the Heather Dawn Church case in True Crime Garage episodes 339 and 340. Smith retired in 1996 from the El Paso County, Colorado Sheriff's Department, where he had served as the captain of detectives. Lou Smith had become a master detective. In 1997, three months after the murder of John Benet Ramsey, Lou Smith was asked by the Boulder District Attorney's Office to come out of retirement and to assist with the investigation. Smith resigned from the case after 18 months, having concluded that the Ramseys were not responsible for the murder and that the Boulder Police Department had been unjustifiably pursuing the Ramseys as suspects, despite DNA and other evidence that showed that some other person was responsible for the killing. As a detective, Smith boasted that he had never lost a homicide case in a career in which he worked on more than 200 murder cases in which a suspect had been arrested and tried for their crime. The master detective, Lou Smith, died at age 75 in August of 2010. He never stopped working the Ramsey case. Until the end, Lou continued working for John Bonet, and today, former homicide detective and retired sheriff, John Wesley Anderson, continues Lou's work. This is True Crime Garage. Welcome to the garage, Mr. Anderson. You have a legendary law enforcement career and fantastic books that you've been putting out over the last several years. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and a brief overview of your law enforcement career? I'll be happy to, Nick, and thank you for having me on your your show. Um, I have had a phenomenal law enforcement career, just fortunate to be in the right place at the right time with the right plan and more importantly with the right people around me and Lou Smith was certainly one of those he and I first met uh, the month after I graduated high school in 1972 and I had applied for the Carl Springs Police Department and their uh, police cadet program and in Colorado anyway you have to be 21 to be a police officer so I was only 18 and for the next two and a half years I did um, various um, positions as a, a police cadet in the department. One of those was in the identification records section, and that's where I met Lou Smith. And he'd come in to pull a criminal record on a suspect or look for a mugshot or something like that. And I became really fascinated with his approach to criminal investigations. So from the time I was 18 for the rest of my life or his life, I was fortunate to be with him and through him really learned the investigative process firsthand and, and working homicide investigations. So when I went on the police department, my, my intent was to be a uniform officer and work the streets. And that was fun. But after uh, meeting Lou, I decided, you know, I think I'd like to, to try to become a detective and maybe be Lou's partner. And I was fortunate to have that opportunity for six years in the homicide division with Carl Springs police department. And Worked um, a number of dozens and dozens of cases with Lou. And then um, I'd gotten promoted, and then a little later he retired. 
And when he retired, he went to the district attorney's office in El Paso County, Colorado, and worked for the coroner's office. And then I ran for sheriff of El Paso County, our, our county sheriff's office, in 1994. And part of my intent to run, I'd had family in law enforcement and an uncle who was a, a sheriff. So I'd always had in the back of my mind, maybe running for county sheriff when I was um, old and gray and finished my career with the police department. But that time got accelerated because of a cold case that we had in El Paso County, the Heather Don Church murder. And some of you may have heard about that one. It's the reason I ran for sheriff when I ran for sheriff in 1994. And one of the first people I told I was going to do this was Lou Smith. And I said, Lou, if, if I'm successful in being elected, I, I really want you to come in and be the captain of detectives for the sheriff's office and take over the Heather Don Church case. And at that point, it had languished. It was a four-year-old cold case. Lou, uh, when he took over the investigation, had the case solved within three and a half months, the, the suspect in custody, and he later pled guilty, took a, a, a life sentence. Later, Lou formed a cold case unit and they were able to get another conviction for first-degree murder on the same suspect. Eventually, that suspect confessed to 49 other, a total of 49 murders. So if it's true, he certainly was one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. Uh, Lou and his team was only able to get six or seven confirmed um, victims on him. And, and after having two life sentences back-to-back, -back, there wasn't a lot of interest in pursuing him further. But that suspect was still in our community and I'm convinced would have continued killing had Lou and his team not come along when they did and taken him off the streets. You also worked with Joe Kenda, is that correct? I did, yes. Joe was, um, for several years, the sergeant of the Homicide Division, and I worked for Joe and appeared on five of his episodes of his uh, television show. And recently you released a book called Lou and John Benet. Could you tell us a little bit about that book? Yes, I'd be happy to. And part of the motivation was we had just surpassed the 25-year anniversary of uh, John Bonet's death. And uh, um, the year before, um, one of the other uh, partners, homicide partners, had worked with Lou and I, Dave Spencer, who was part of our uh, Smith family team, um, who had helped uh, investigate um, the case after uh, Lou had passed on. And uh, tragically, Dave passed away in um, uh, 2020 and, uh, on the anniversary date, December 26th of 2020. And what it, it caused me to do was to realize that um, that it really was up to me to document a lot of the information that we had developed and, and also really look at um, presenting Lou's facts uh, publicly so that other people could understand how was it that Lou had reached the conclusion that an intruder had entered the Ramsey home and that the murder was not committed by a Ramsey family member. And that was really important to, to Lou. So I thought the book, it's titled Lou and John Bonet, A Legendary Lawman's Quest to Solve a Child Beauty Queen's Murder. I thought that that was my way of helping document the case as completely as I could coming up on that 25 year anniversary, but also this, the second purpose 
was to encourage law enforcement to continue to uh, reevaluate the physical evidence, to look at the possibility of the DNA, the foreign DNA that was found under the little girl's fingernails and on her clothing, uh, and use that unknown male DNA to help identify the killer. And one of the things Lou had done before he passed away in 2010, he knew he was he was dying. He he had cancer and and um, was in remission for a short time, and then it returned. And when he was in hospice, and right before he went into hospice, he made sure that the case was as um, organized as possible, and that not only I, but Dave Spencer and other detectives, and his, most importantly, Lou's family, knew how to find information in the case, his case file, how it was organized, and what his dying wish was, is to make sure that the case didn't die with him. And he had um, a wonderful quote on trying to keep a cold case from going cold. And that was, he often said, you have to stir the pot. And that's what I think this this call is today, this this uh, interview, Nick, is, is another chance to stir the pot because you never know who's going to hear this and what leads will come out of this. But what I hope the the, the book does is clear uh, the the Ramsey family from this this cloud of suspicion, this umbrella of suspicion, as the Boulder police alluded to so often, and and then maybe through the book and the effort of the family and others to to encourage law enforcement, you know, to reevaluate the evidence and to look at you know identifying that unknown male DNA. Do you remember your first conversation with Lou about the John Bonet Ramsey case? I don't know if it was the first one, but it was certainly the most meaningful one. <laughs> and it happened while um, Lou was um, getting ready to be the best man at my wedding, uh, second wedding. We were in Las Vegas, and Lou had picked up my fiance and I at the airport the day before we were to be married in a stretch limousine. And I remember exactly the the conversation because this stretch limousine that Lou had uh, uh, rented for us to pick us up at the airport, the roof was open and he had had a, a bottle of champagne in, a, in an, a silver ice bucket. And we'd just uncorked the champagne and we're standing up looking at the, through the, the sunroof the, the, of the limo, looking at the lights um, uh, in Las Vegas. And he said, Johnny, you may be getting a call from Alex Hunter, the district attorney in Boulder, because he's putting together a task force. This is in, in March of 97. And he said that the DA is, is um, putting together a task force and he's invited me to come out of retirement to be a part of that. And he asked for references and I gave the district attorney, Alex Hunter, your name and phone number. So, so you might be getting a call. And sure enough, that the next day, I did get a call from uh, Alex Hunter, the district attorney, who asked if I would recommend Lou to be uh, part of the John Bonet Ramsey task force that he was putting together in Boulder. And of course, I said, absolutely, that would be the, one of the smartest moves that you could make. And so Lou worked for the DA for the next 18 months. During that time, did he share information with you? He did very frequently. Almost every time we saw each other, which was probably maybe not weekly, but you know, uh, Probably every other week we'd get together and have coffee or lunch or we'd talk. 
and almost without exception, the conversation would come around to, you know, how are things progressing in Boulder? What's new there? Anything I can do to help? I was still the sheriff of El Paso County, so we did have some resources. I remember when Lou um, accepted the district attorney's invitation to come up and be part of the task force, he really didn't think this was going to be a, a prolonged investigation. He, like so many of us, <clears throat> you know, had only gotten our information through the the media, and a lot of that was distorted or misinformation. And and so when I think, I'm fairly confident that the conversations we had prior to him going to Boulder was, you know, trying to determine which of the family members, probably one of the parents, was responsible for the murder, like so many other people, because the early reports from the media talked about no footprints in the snow, no forced entry. But I remember specifically, though, I think it was the following weekend after he'd been at the Boulder DA's office, he was back in Colorado Springs. And it was the first time that we had actually talked since he had become part of the task force. And one of the first things he told me is he said, Johnny, there's there's something wrong in Boulder. He said the physical evidence is not supporting what is being touted in the in the media. And he talked about how the the reason there was no uh, footprints in the snow is because on the southern facing side of the of the home, where the the sun warms the sidewalk or the building, it melts the snow quicker here in in Colorado on the south side of the the home. He said there is definitely a uh, evidence of uh, forcible entry with a window in the basement on the south side of the house that was accessible through a window well that was left standing wide open and it had a, um, a window pane at the top that had been broken out that was used by John Benet's father the previous summer and he'd reached through he, uh, he'd locked himself out of the house so what he did was he uh, crawled into that window well there's a heavy metal grate on it so he removed the grate crawled into the window well and he broke this one window pane out at the top of the window closest to where the lock was re- reached in unlocked the window opened the window, went inside through the basement, turned around and locked the window behind him. But he he said that his regret the rest of his life was that he never had that window pane repaired. And that was what Lou believed the suspect used to enter the Ramsey home on Christmas night. The thing that fascinates me about that situation is not just that he finds a possible point of entry for an intruder, you know, there, there are some that, that say, well, there's evidence to suggest that that's not the way that one would have gotten to that home. But what fascinates me about that aspect is it's the total reverse of what we had been told up until that point. No signs uh, forced entry into the home. And what's so confusing about this crime scene to most people most of us don't live in a home that big with that many doors, that many windows. And we clearly know that Boulder PD overlooked a lot of valuable information and possible evidence at the crime scene. Heck, they didn't find the victim for several hours after being on the scene. You're, you're right, Nick. And as a matter of fact, they weren't even the ones who found the, the victim's body. It was her father seven hours after the 911 call came in. And from the time the first Boulder police officer arrived at the Ramsey home, there was a series of, of fatal errors that were made to investigate the case properly. 
the first officer was handed the ransom note who looked at it, handed it back. And that ransom note got passed around to many people in the home. There was probably as many as maybe up to two dozen people who were allowed into the home. It was never secured. In the Boulder police, there there was other uniform officers arrived, a sergeant, the the commanding off the the com- the commander on duty at the time came, so there were a, n- a number of uniformed, plainclothes, and crime scene uh, technicians from Boulder PD who arrived to initially process the scene. After about two hours, they all left, and um, one detective, Linda Arndt, was was uh, tasked with remaining at the home just in case the the suspect um, uh, called and, and made arrangements for the ransom de- demand to be picked up. It was this detective, Linda Arndt, after um, several hours later, um, with nothing happening, is when she instructed John Ramsey to take one other man who was in the home and to search the, the house again from top to bottom to see if anything was out of place. So John Ramsey took one other uh, a friend of his, an, another gentleman, and they started in the basement. When he went into the basement, he pointed to that open window, and he said, that's that window that's standing open, and there's this blue suitcase that's underneath that window standing upright. And he said, that wasn't like that before. That window was closed. That's the window that I used to get in when I locked myself out of the, out of the home last summer. And then John in the basement searched, uh, there's, it's, it's only a half basement. So it's a huge, it's a large house, four levels, but the basement was not huge. And when he, uh, there's only like four rooms in the basement. So when he walked through the room where the window was standing open, they called that the train room, just because there was a toy model train set up in the basement for the kids to play with. But he walked into another room that they called the boiler room. And then adjacent to the boiler room was a smaller room that they called the wine cellar, although there was no wine in it. And when he op- opened the door to the wine cellars, when he saw his daughter laying on the on the floor and she um, was deceased, um, he didn't know that. His first in, um, reaction is to try to help her, as any of us would. And he, he noticed immediately that there was black duct tape over her face, over her mouth, so he ripped that off, again, contaminating the scene, uh, tries to untie the knots that were around her wrists and around her throat from the garage. He screamed for help. He picks her up, and then he carries her upstairs through the, the kitchen, lays her on the floor by the Christmas tree, hoping that the detective or someone you know can help revive his little girl. From the time that the police officers first arrived to the time that her body is found seven hours later, there's a known number of, of neighbors and friends and police officers, first responders, crime scene investigators that have uh, contaminated the crime scene. So um, it's a it's a real tragedy. One of the baffling things, I guess, for me as being a police officer in 30 years and probably a lot of police officers is how can you enter a, a home to search for a missing six-year-old girl and not search the entire house for wherever that little girl could be. I've been on many calls and you, you, you know, you, uh, a six-year-old little girl, kindergartner, it's not very big, but you want to look anywhere she can be. You know, is she under the bed? Is she, could she be in the clothes hamper? Is she hiding in a closet? Is she sick or injured or scared? And um, the other thing as an officer 
is you want to search the entire house to also see if there's a suspect in there. You, you don't want to turn your back on a, on a possible suspect, a threat. So you search every, the, the rooms and on every floor carefully to make sure that you're not turning your back on a, on a suspect. And that was not done. And that, and that's just, um, defies even common sense. If you're looking for a lost little girl, a little girl that's missing, that can't be found, who, who, who the ransom note says was abducted and being held for ransom, you, you should, you should search wherever that, that child might be. And that was not, that was not done. And you don't ask, you know, someone else that's not law enforcement you know, to, to search, to try to find them because they're going to do the natural thing like, like her dad did and contaminate the scene and try to, try to help them. And unfortunately, my opinion, Linda Arndt, she's kind of, she's left there to try to corral several adults into one room and she's having trouble keeping a couple of them in the room. And so I, I think she kind of did that as a way to keep people busy and with very little knowledge or information being provided to her while she's left alone with all the, I, I, I just can't believe for a second that we have a police department that is under the impression that a child is missing, has been abducted and there's a ransom. And yet we only put one officer posted up at the house with the parents and now their, their friends and priests are there with them as well. And a very, obviously, highly emotional uh, setting. She's dealing with a number of different people in, in a uh, very stressful in, environment. And, um, you know, the, the Ramses are um, uh, and were a very religious uh, family. And the priest was allowed into the home and he's assembling prayer circles. And, and uh, you know, that, that adds a lot to the um, very stressful environment that that Linda Arndt was in by herself. So I think you're right. I think she's trying to, you know, keep these people busy for several hours waiting for the phone to ring, which never happens. One of the things that I do have trouble with Linda, and I don't know if this was just the way she's wired or lack, lack of training, but I, I do know that she made a statement later and, and repeated the statement about when John Ramsey brings her little girl, uh, his little girl upstairs, lays her on the floor um, that Linda Arndt checks for vital signs, doesn't find any. And then, and then she says she looks into the eyes of John Ramsey, knew she was count, knew she was looking in the eyes of the killer, and then made some statement about counting the number of bullets in her gun because she was afraid that he was going to kill everybody else in the house. And, and I know John Ramsey. I've met with him several times. Lou had in, um, uh, introduced us. And he is uh, n not, I mean, he's a very humble, very, very uh, calm person. But I, I can't, and I've looked into the eyes of a, a lot of different killers, and I can't imagine how she could immediately jump to the conclusion that she's looking into the eyes of a killer and that she feels so threatened that she's counting the bullets in her gun. So I don't know if she just was that inexperienced or lack of uh, skill or, or, or training or lack of confidence. But I think it does show some preconceived belief that a Ramsey family member was involved before the body was found. And, and uh, it, it, you just can't objectively investigate a crime without all the, the facts. 
especially a complex frame like this one. Yeah, possibly something that, like you said, uh, preconceived notions, or was it a situation where she created a better story later to sell her book? Oh, that 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 could be too. Yes, and it yeah, it's really unfortunate. There there were no winners out of this case. Um, she left the department uh, not under good circumstances. Uh, Steve Thomas, who was the for a short for a time the lead detective who who left in uh, to write a book and. Um, you know this 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 case ended a lot of a lot of people's careers. Now, when you were having your almost weekly meetings with Lou, like you mentioned, there's misinformation like the the footprints. I mean, I I remember when we looked into this case and going, well, there's no footprints in the snow, so therefore it had to be an inside job. And then you later find out that there's there was parts of the yard that didn't have snow, mm-hmm. so there obviously couldn't be any footprints. Was was there other pieces of misinformation that that Lou was pointing out to you that that you remember being shocking? Uh, y- yes, and and I don't want to misrepresent um, my involvement um, because it was minimal. Um, right, uh, and, and again, it was probably only once or twice a month that Lou and I would uh, talk, uh, or in social um, in, in encounters, you know, or just have lunch or coffee just to stay in touch with friends and then the case would come up. So I don't want it to come across like I was advising him, you know, or consulting on the case because that that's not the, the circumstances at all. But um, what I can say though, is when we would meet, he would continue to add one more uh, piece of evidence or one more layer of information that excluded the Ramsey family and pointed again to the intruder. And within the first several months, he had developed what I thought was an undeniable case that um, the family was not involved and that um, uh, 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 the killer uh, who intended to commit uh, uh, an abduction for ransom that something had gone wrong um, in the commission of that, that crime after he had contact with with a little girl, and that a very violent sexual assault happened in the basement of the home and culminated with, with her being bludgeoned with some type of a heavy uh, blunt force object. But I, I know that um, Lou had a difficult time trying to, to communicate to the bolder detectives, the evidence that really should be pursued, that again would convince most people beyond any reasonable doubt that that the Ramseys weren't involved. And um, some of that evidence had to do with um, what was brought into the home by the killer and what was taken away. For example, Lou put a lot of emphasis on the uh, paracord, the, uh, bind, the, the white parachute cord, that was um, used to fashion the garrote that 
was was found on John Bonet's uh, around her throat, um, and also is the same cordage that was used to bind her wrist. And uh, what Lou knew was, um, uh, and we have all in investigations been taught this, the idea of the uh, um, transfer theory with, that states whenever crime is committed, the suspect either takes something into the crime scene or takes something away from the crime scene, takes something with them. And what Luke pointed out was the, the paracord is a good example because uh, it's called paracord paracord 550. The, it's not a common uh, cordage, especially back in the 90s. It was mostly for military purposes. It was used for suspension lines on a parachute. And um, later, it became more popular with outdoor people, hunters, and so on, because it is such, um, it's so, so strong. And, um, but there was no uh, paracord anywhere in the Ramsey home other than what was used on the garage and around John Bonet's wrist, same way with the black duct tape that was on her uh, mouth. Uh, it's about a six-inch strip of black duct tape that was torn on both edges. Uh, Lou pointed that out; it, they weren't cut. And I remember Lou telling me that you know when you look at the duct tape where it was was uh, torn, if you could find the parent roll you'd be able to match the one edge of the of the torn duct tape to that rule, or if you could find anywhere in the house where that duct tape had been used um, anywhere, um, on the back of a picture frame or around um, uh, some, some duct work. But he said the Ramses didn't own any black duct tape. The house was searched from top to bottom, and there was no duct tape that was found. And he said, um, you know, when you think about that, that six inch piece of duct tape, you know, most everybody's handled duct tape, you know, that sticks to everything. So how do you get that into the house if it's not um, part of that role? And then Lou also talked about the stun gun. And that was something else that he put a lot of time and energy in um, as the case continued to evolve when he was still with the district attorney's office. And trying to get the the Boulder detectives to look at the stun gun marks that the wounds that were on uh, John Bonet's back on the left side and on the right side of her cheek below her her right ear, and what Lou pointed out is that these these are thermal uh, wounds abrasions, um, and and they were rectangular uh, in shape and measured three point five centimeters apart both on on the side of her face and not on her, her back. And Lou became convinced they were thermal wounds caused from a stun gun, the discharge of a stun gun, when it is placed in contact with the flesh, not not with the barbs being shot into the, 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 the person, but by the cartridge from the top being removed and the electrodes actually come in direct contact with, with the body. And um, the, the detectives even up to the last time I talked to the homicide detectives, twenty or several months ago, um, they denied, you know, that that was even a remote possibility. So one of the things Lou had done when he left the Boulder uh, DA's office, he he resigned in protest when they were getting ready to take the case in front of the grand jury. He could see that the whole purpose was politically charged to indict the parents, and he he just. 
and he wrestled with with that. He he showed me the the uh, draft of the letter he was sending to the district attorney to resign from from the task force, and he said, "I know this is going to be really hard to work this case from the outside looking in." But he told me, he said, "I just can't be a part of it, you know this because they're using the grand jury system." to indict these parents who are grieving parents who are not involved in this murder and they're trying to uh, indict them for the, 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 the death of their little girl. And he said, I just can't be a part of that. So what Lou tried to do was uh, in protest was to draw attention to the fact that somebody, some objective um, uh, body needs to look at uh, the evidence that the Boulder police had refused to acknowledge uh, and it wasn't just the police, it was the district attorney in Boulder, the special prosecutors that were appointed by the governor at the time. And Lou um, asked to be um, allowed in to present um, his side of the, the case because um, it, it was not being uh, presented. And one of the most forceful things he wanted to get in front of the grand jury was the evidence of the intruder, the the um uh, the the photos that sh- of the crime scene that showed the window standing open in the basement that there was no snow out there but one of the most important things was the uh, foreign DNA that was left um, on the uh, under John Bonet's fingernails and on the crotch of her panties and that that eliminated um, any member of the the Ramsey family within three weeks of the murder. And that information was never released. In fact, it didn't get to the district attorney's office where Lou was working for several months. I think it was July of 97 when that report, final, that lab report finally came through to the DA's office. And Lou knew immediately that that was information that was not being released anywhere that that really did uh, exclude the, the Ramsey family. In all of your years in law enforcement, and as a detective, as a sheriff, you've seen it all. Have you ever witnessed or been a part of or experienced such a divide between a police department and a district attorney's office in a homicide, a child abduction, a situation where parents killed the child any any number of those scenarios have you ever witnessed a situation more divided than what was going on in boulder with the john benet case i have not and that was very out of character with the law enforcement agencies that lou or i had ever worked with in in fact in um our 30 40 year career if you count the homeland security work that i did um all of all of the law enforcement agencies worked very much as partners. We were aware of where one jurisdiction began and another ended, so we wouldn't step on one another's, um, you know, get out get out into uh, out of bounds. But what we what we try to do is utilize their strengths. Uh, a good example is if there was a, I don't know grand larceny auto that crossed you know state lines, the FBI could prosecute and. Um, uh, you know, had a greater reach, you know, than, than we did. And, and at that time, felony grand larceny auto carried a higher penalty. So we would readily work with the FBI and not say, wait a minute, this is my case back off. It was the opposite or, or armed robberies where you have federally insured bank. We knew that uh, under federal charges, we could get 
um, a higher penalty. And in Boulder, what was just alarming, the FBI was notified immediately. And in fact, they were allowed to put up a phone trace on the Ramsey phone, but they were never allowed in the house, which was baffling because everybody else was being allowed in the house. But the FBI, um, from the very first, within the first few hours, um, the the um, resident agent in charge of the Denver office said, look, you know, we have uh, experts that we can bring in. We have, uh, you know, crime scene investigators, you know, let us let us help. And Boulder PD, to include up to the staff officers, refused to let the FBI even step foot into the crime scene other than the phone trap. Said, we don't, we don't want your help. We don't need any help. We got this covered. You know, go away. And then that was exasperated with the, uh, within a few days when the Denver Police Department offered two homicide detectives to be loaned from Denver's homicide unit to the Boulder Police Department at no charge. And the problem that Boulder PD was dealing with is none of, not only none of their detectives, but none of their supervisors or rank and file, none, none of their chain of command had worked um, a, a murder either. So this was new to all of them. But the homicide detectives out of Denver, uh, for people who don't know, Colorado Springs is a large, large police agency. And, and we worked um, several dozen, you know, homicides every year. But Denver, just being such a larger community, would probably work two or three times the number of cases we did. So they, those homicide detectives had even more experience than someone like, like me would have. So when um, Denver PD, the command staff, offered two homicide detectives, these were, I don't, I don't know the names of who they offered, but I do know the uh, caliber uh, and the training of the, bold, or of the Denver homicide unit is, is almost unparalleled that they really are true experts. And they could have, from from the very first day, pointed out the physical evidence that Lou, months later, is trying to get them to focus on. One of the biggest mistakes from the first day, second day, third day of the investigation was refusing any help from any outside agencies. And I know that's something that John Ramsey also um uh, has commented on in some of the contacts discussions that he and I have had and where he's spoken out publicly either on documentaries or in a public forum. He said, you know, I, I don't blame Boulder police for not having, you know, a, a lot of experienced homicide detectives because you know, it's a smaller community. They didn't have a lot of violent crime. But he says the thing that it, that I will never forgive them for is that they turned down help from the very beginning, that would have completely changed the course of this investigation and perhaps the outcome. Frankly, my speculation is this. We have Boulder PD who doesn't seem – Alex Hunter, the DA, they're not getting along seeing eye to eye completely on this investigation. Boulder PD is is steadfast saying, well, Patsy Ramsey killed John Bonet. Alex Hunter is simply saying, well, we don't have enough evidence to – take this to trial or beyond that, get a conviction. So Lou essentially is brought in by Alex Hunter simply to find that evidence, right? He's, he's how many homicide investigations? Yeah. Over 200. Yes. Over 200 with, mm -hmm. with, with the clearance rate of what? Uh, I think Lou probably had about a 98% clearance rate. Maybe. Yeah. Right at that, that very few cases, um, uh, did, did he not clear, 
And the other amazing thing is he never lost a case in court. He had a hundred percent conviction rate. So he's worked 200 more homicide cases than John Eller, the captain of the detectives for Boulder PD worked 200 more homicide cases than Steve Thomas, who was one of the lead detectives on the John Bonet case. And he's brought in essentially to find evidence to take this, to take Patsy Ramsey to trial that they could not find. And when he comes back to Alex Hunter and says, the evidence you're looking for is not here because I'm finding evidence that something else happened. Another theory is probably the more likely. And Alex Hunter eventually says, I'm going to take this to the grand jury who's already been tainted from the media for, you know, for months and months and months. And we're going to get our, we're going to get this thing to trial that way. And, and Lou basically says, well, I got to get out of this because you're not, you're not respecting the, the investigation. I'm following the evidence where it led me. And I'm here to tell you that this is not my findings. Correct. That, that is correct. One, one slight um, uh, a change there or, or focus, and we may never know the truth to this, is I'm not so sure taking the case to the grand jury was Alex Hunter's idea and not um, uh, the, the, the governor uh, at the time or someone with the Colorado um, AG's office or, or somebody. And the reason I say that is because... Um, Alex Hunter had the jurisdiction to assemble the grand jury on his own in Boulder. It was his county. He was the district attorney, but that didn't happen. What happened is the governor of Colorado at the time appointed three special prosecutors for the grand jury. They're the ones who came into Boulder and they opened up that impaneled the grand jury. And then they ran for months and months taking testimony. And, um, once that was over, the, uh, um, the grand jury did return a true bill indicting both the John and Patsy, not for a murder, but for a lesser crime of, uh, and I can't remember the statue that was cited, but it was something about enabling um, or endangering you know, their child or something like that. And then Alex Hunter uh, quashed the um, uh, true bill. He, he just took the true bill rather than than charging the parents. And that's when he makes the statement that you just referred to, Nick, about there's no evidence to uh, convict anybody in this crime. And so what, what Alex Hunter did was he just put both of those um, true bill indictments in his bottom desk drawer, never acknowledged them. And it wasn't until later when he's out of office and the next district attorney comes in, her name was uh, Mary Lacey, and she's the one who um, issues the letter to the parents saying that they, they Boulder uh, District Attorney's Office, acknowledge that no one in the Ramsey family was involved. And then this next district attorney to Boulder, uh, Stan Garnett, he's the one who first acknowledges, that, to, my, to my understanding, that there was actually a true bill indictment from the grand jury because that was never released. And when he does this, he points out that the statute of limitations on that charge had uh, ran out. Now, had they been charged with a first degree murder, there's no statute limitations there. But um, by the time that that information surfaces years later, that the grand jury did return a true bill on both the parents, that was um, that was new information. 
but it was Alex Hunter who made the determination. There's there there's no way you know that they can be convicted of this crime. And and I did not talk to Alex Hunter specifically about this, but I know him, and he's a brilliant man, and um, and could think through a criminal investigation methodically. Was well known in Colorado um, law enforcement circles as as a, as a as a bright prosecutor. I have absolutely no doubt that he knew that his biggest um, challenge, um, if he did indict the parents, was the defense attorney's star witness was going to be his former investigator, Lou Smith. Make sure you check out the great book, Lou and John Bonet, A Legendary Lawman's Quest to Solve a Child Beauty Queen's Murder by John Wesley Anderson. And make sure you come back here to the garage tomorrow and join us for part two. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't worry.